My name's John Redmond, and I'm the associate pastor at First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. And I want to thank you for joining us today on Peace by Believing. And I believe that you've chosen a good day to be with us because we're going to be studying the Lord's Prayer today, the most beautiful prayer that has ever been written, the most beautiful prayer that could ever be prayed, is the prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples 2,000 years ago. And we call it the Lord's Prayer. It's not a prayer that Jesus himself ever prayed. It is a prayer instead that he gave to his disciples so that they could pray. And now that we're followers of Christ, it certainly is a prayer that we can pray. And when Jesus gave this prayer, he said, when you pray, pray in this manner or pray this way. Start out by saying, our Father in heaven. Now, that expression, our Father, lets us know that God is not some distant being. He's not just the Creator. He is our Father. If you have ever received Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, in that moment of your salvation, God became your Father. And so when you go to Him in prayer, you are talking to someone who loves you Uh, The word Father is a family word, and that's how Jesus said that we should begin praying, talking to our Father. And then He's in heaven. That is, He has power, all power, to meet our needs, to solve our problems, to see us through any difficulties we might ever face in life. He's our Father in heaven. And then after that opening phrase in this prayer, Jesus listed out for us six different petitions, six different things that we should pray Uh, on a regular basis. And the first of those was, after we have addressed God as our Father, we should pray, hallowed be your name. That is, God, may your name be honored and glorified in everything that I do, in my words, in my ways, in my reaction, in my worship of you. God, may every part of my life, my thoughts, my free time, my work life, my relationships. God, may everything about my life bring honor and glory to your name. That word hallowed just means uh, to make holy. God, may I be a good reflection. May I show to others by the way I live that I honor and revere your name. We're not going to be perfect, certainly, but even in our imperfections and even in our sinfulness through confession and through being honest with others when we mess up and sin, we're honoring and glorifying God's name. And so that's how, that's how we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then on today's program, we come to the next of these uh, petitions or requests where Jesus said, you should pray this, your kingdom come. It's the shortest line in the Lord's Prayer. It only has three words in our English Bibles, your kingdom come. Come. So, what does this mean? When Jesus told us to pray for God's kingdom to come, what was he talking about? What is God's kingdom? Well, it's interesting. As you study history, you see that history, to a large degree, is the rising and falling of many kingdoms. In fact, you can go way back into history and you see the rise and fall of the Assyrian Empire. 
you see the rise and fall of the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. And so all through history, kingdoms have risen and kingdoms have fallen. Now, when we pray to God, your kingdom come, we're praying for the establishment of a kingdom on earth that will never fall. It will be established by Jesus and it will last forever. So we're praying for something very important. Now, notice that we're supposed to pray for God's kingdom to come, not for our kingdom. We don't pray, God, uh, make my name great, or God, make our church well-known, or God, make us famous. That would be wrong. That would be pride, and that would not honor God's name. And so we're not praying for our kingdom to, be, to come. We're praying for God's kingdom to Come now. What is God's kingdom? I mean, when we when we talk about that, I guess when we hear the expression uh, "God's kingdom" or "Your kingdom come," we think about you know, in heaven, God has a kingdom. Heaven is a city. God is the ruler. Jesus is the king. And so, I guess that's where God's kingdom is. And in fact, it is. But let's give a little broader definition, maybe, of the kingdom of God. I've defined it simply as this. God's kingdom is the place where Jesus rules and reigns, where righteousness, stability, love, joy, and peace abound, and where sin and selfishness have been done away with. Now, that's a long definition and a little bit of a wordy definition, so I want to say it again. What is God's kingdom? It is the place where Jesus Christ rules and reigns, where righteousness, stability, love, joy, and peace abound, and where sin and selfishness have been done away with. That is God's kingdom. Now, when you hear that definition, you think, well, where in the world is this place? Because I want to join that kingdom. I want to be a part of anything that is as wonderful as that, where Jesus is ruling and reigning, where righteousness, stability, love, joy, and peace abound, and where sin and selfishness have been done away with. Well, where is this place? Well, first of all, the kingdom of God, it is above us. It is in heaven, and that's what it's like in heaven. You know, if you think about earthly kingdoms, and even if, as you think about our own country, the United States, whom we all so deeply love, I don't think anybody would say that the United States is full of righteousness and instability and love and joy and peace. I mean, there's a lot of that here, but a lot of what we see happening in our own country is unrighteousness. There's sin. In our own lives, we all have sin, and certainly we see unrighteousness uh, almost weekly with shootings and horrible acts of violence, and we, we see these things happening. And I don't think anybody would say that on earth we're, we, we're seeing a lot of stability. In fact, on earth, we seem to see a lot of instability. Down here on earth, I'm afraid that uh, much of what happens is not characterized by love. It's, it's, uh, it's characterized by hatred. And, and joy, I don't know that you could say that uh, the people living on earth, for the most part, are full of joy and peace. I, 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 I hope that, that we all are, but I'm afraid that that's just not true. I think there's a lot of unhappiness, and I think there's a lot of unrest. And so when we pray for God's kingdom to come... We're, we're talking about a kingdom that is currently above us. It is in heaven. And if we could just be somehow transported to heaven today, if we could have a glimpse 
into heaven. If we could just see what is happening in heaven today, we would find a place where Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, where righteousness and stability and love and joy and peace are abounding, and where sin and selfishness have been done away with. You see, the reason we have so many problems on the earth today and, and so many times in our own lives is we still are contending with sin. We're contending with that old sin nature, and we're having to deal with selfishness and it has the ramifications, but not above us, not in heaven. Heaven is a perfect place, and that's where the kingdom of God is, is currently uh, residing, and, and that's where it is currently existing. But not only is God's kingdom above us, God's kingdom is also within us. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17 that the kingdom of heaven is within us. It is within the heart of every person who believes in Jesus Christ. That's where the kingdom of God is. That's where the kingdom of heaven is. And so, friend, if you're saved, and by saved, I mean if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have received him, if his spirit has come to live in your heart and to take up residence within you, God's kingdom is already, it's, it's within you now. And yes, it is above you, but it is also within you. And so you have within you righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. You have within you stability, the very stability of God. You have the love of God, the joy of God, the peace of God. All these things are in your heart and in your life. And you say, well, if all these things are there, why don't I experience them more often? Because even though we have the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven within us, we still battle that sin nature. We still battle the flesh. We still have selfish desires. And we still have a lot of things that get us in trouble. But that doesn't change the fact that living within the heart of every true believer is the kingdom of God. And if we can focus on that kingdom, and if we can focus on the king of that kingdom, Jesus, we will have in our lives that peace and that stability and that love that God wants us to experience on a daily basis. And so, where is this kingdom? It is above us. It is within us. But think about this. One day, the kingdom of God is coming to this world. It's coming down out of heaven, and it is coming to this world. The kingdom of God. Right now, it's in our hearts. Right now, it's in heaven above us. But one day, this old world that we're living in will be ruled by Jesus. Now, let me just take a moment and talk about how the kingdom of God is going to come down to this earth one day. And uh, to, to answer that question and deal with that, I need to just kind of talk a little bit about end times and to give a very brief prophetic overview of what's going to happen uh, next in the world. We know that the next event on God's prophetic clock, if I can use that terminology, is the rapture of the church. That is, there's coming a day. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen whenever God wants it to happen. The Bible teaches in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that there's going to be a shout from heaven. There's going to be the voice of the archangel. And the trumpet of God is going to sound. And all of the people who have been saved are going to be caught up to heaven to be with God. Now, we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 that Christians who have died, whose bodies have already been placed in the grave, that those bodies are going to come up out of the grave first before, uh, before those of us who are living on the earth, before we go up to uh, 
the air and meet God there, meet Christ there, the bodies of those who have been saved are going to come up. Now, this opens up a lot of questions. What happens to a Christian when he dies? Where does a Christian go when he or she dies? Well, we know that when a Christian dies, we go immediately to heaven to be with God. The Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I have four grandparents who are in heaven today. They were saved. They were Christians. And years and years ago, they died. Their bodies were buried. But when their bodies died, their spirit, their soul, came out of their body and went to be with God in heaven. And that's where they are now. You say, well, what kind of body are they in in heaven since they've not received their resurrected body yet? Well, I don't fully know the answer to that question except to say this. They are in a recognizable body. Jesus told a story in Luke 16, and in the story he talked about Abraham and how Abraham, of course, died many years ago, and he's in heaven today. But on one occasion, somebody was looking up into heaven and was able to recognize Abraham. So Abraham does not have his resurrected body yet, but he has a recognizable body. Don't think that when a Christian dies that that person's spirit or soul is just floating around somewhere because that's not true. That person's spirit or soul goes to heaven, and they receive in that moment some kind of a recognizable body. But at the rapture of the church, when Jesus leaves heaven and comes to the air, he's going to bring Father Abraham. He's going to bring my grandparents. He's going to bring all the people who have died and have gone on to heaven. He's going to bring all of those people to the air and he's going to bring their bodies out of the grave, or maybe their ashes have been scattered at sea. He's going to regather all those ashes up, and he's going to reunite those living souls with their resurrected bodies, and in that moment, they will receive their fully glorified resurrected bodies. So keep in mind, now they're in a recognizable body. They'll get their resurrected and glorified body at the rapture of the church. And then after that happens, for example, if it were to happen today, those of us who are saved, we're going to be caught up into the air, and we're going to, in that same moment, receive our new body, our resurrected and glorified body. We just won't have to die. We will be uh, made like Jesus just that quickly, just that fast. And so that's the rapture of the church. And then after we meet the Lord in the air and after we're reunited with all of those whom we love, who knew Christ, we will go to heaven and we will be with Jesus Christ in heaven. Now, while we're in heaven, uh, something terrible is going to happen on the earth, and that is a seven-year period of great tribulation will begin on the earth. The Antichrist is going to rise up and when the, all hell will literally be breaking loose on the earth, you can imagine that when the tribulation period begins on earth, there are no Christians. There's no church. And so everybody on the earth is unsaved, and, and all the Christians have left the earth. And so now all these people on the earth are trying to figure out what in the world is going on, and God is going to begin judging begin the process of judging sin and judging this world. It's going to be a horrible, horrible time of, uh, of persecution like unto which the world has never known. It's going to last for seven years. At the end of that seven-year period, Jesus Christ is going to leave heaven, and he's going to come back to this earth 
We read about this in Revelation chapter 19. Those of us who've been saved, those of us who have been given our new resurrected glorified bodies, we're going to follow Jesus out of heaven. We're going to follow him down to this earth. And we read in the scriptures that he'll be on a white horse and we'll be following him on our white horses. And you say, well, where are we coming? Well, we're coming to the earth for, him, for Jesus to set up his kingdom on the earth. And he's going to set that kingdom up in Jerusalem. But on his way to Jerusalem, he's going to go to a place in northern Israel called the Valley of Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo. And at that time, the Antichrist will have gathered his followers. And there will be a war that the Antichrist is trying to wage against God himself and against everything that is holy. And Jesus is going to come out of heaven and the Bible says that a sword is going to come out of Jesus' mouth and he will destroy the Antichrist and there will be a phenomenal amount of bloodshed in that valley of Megiddo, which, by the way, has been the home of so many wars. I believe it was Napoleon who said that the valley of Megiddo is, a, is the world's most natural battlefield. The way it is set up, between the mountains, there's this open plain there. I've been there many times myself and, and seen this. And that's where the Battle of Armageddon will be fought. And so we won't have to fight. Jesus will do the fighting for us, and he will defeat the Antichrist. And then Jesus will lead us from northern Israel to southern Israel to the city of Jerusalem. In fact, we read in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4 that when Jesus gets to southern Israel, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. In fact, that old mountain is going to split in two, and it's going to be an amazing sight. And Jesus will then go down the Kidron Valley on the uh, one side and back up the Kidron Valley on the other into the city of Jerusalem, and we will be following him, and Jesus will set up his kingdom on earth. He will rule with a rod of iron, and there will finally be peace in the Middle East. We will follow Jesus into that kingdom. The word millennium, you would think it means a million, but it really means a thousand. It's a Latin word, and it means a thousand years. And so for a thousand years, Jesus is going to rule and reign this world from Jerusalem, and we will be with him, and we will be in his kingdom. And so when, what I, I tell all that to say, when you pray this part of the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, what you're really saying is, God, hasten the day. God, bring that day to pass when you Come back to this earth for the second time. The first time was at Bethlehem. The second time is for the millennium. And when you set up your kingdom here on earth. And so, God, we're asking you to hasten that day. We know that during those thousand years, the, uh, Satan is going to be in a bottomless pit. We read about this in, uh, in the book of Revelation. He will be cast into a bottomless pit, and he'll be there for a thousand years. And then after that thousand-year period... Satan will be released, and he will try for a brief time to deceive people who are living on the earth, who maybe were born, uh, well, they would have been born during this thousand-year period, and they're not saved. They don't know Christ. They're not following Christ. And even though Jesus is ruling, and even though during that thousand-year period there's perfect peace because Jesus is keeping a, a tight thumb on everything, there will still be people who are born during that period of time 
who, uh, who are not saved. And after the devil's released from that bottomless pit, he will go out and he will try to deceive them one more time. And then Jesus will finally say, that's enough. God the Father will say, Satan, you've done all that I'm going to allow you to do. And at that point, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. And that phrase in the Bible, the lake of fire, that's just another reference to hell. Satan will be cast into hell. We read about this in Revelation chapter number 20. And then after Satan is cast into hell, in Revelation chapter 21, we read something very interesting. John the Apostle is having this vision. This vision, He's having a vision, a vision of something that has not happened yet. But listen to how he says it. He says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So if you think about it, there's coming a day. Yes, Jesus is going to set up a kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years. But after that, and after Satan is sentenced to hell, there's coming a day when heaven is literally coming down to this earth. And that's what it says, that God will dwell with them, and we will be his people, and God himself will be our God. Just like in the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world, God used to go to that garden every day in the cool of the day, and he would walk with Adam and Eve, and then sin happened. And sin separated man from God. But because of Jesus Christ's death on that cross, he has bridged that gap. He has opened the door to heaven for us. And one of these days, God is going to take the paradise that was lost, and it's going to be paradise regained. And the, everything that was supposed to be on this earth originally, perfection and holiness and righteousness and uh, freedom from sickness and pain and death and cancer and and all these things that, that, that we're having to deal with sometimes down here on the earth. God's going to set his kingdom up on the earth. And it won't just be for a thousand years at that point. It will be forever and forever and forever. And the devil will be put away forever and ever. He'll never cause any problems again. And so what I'm saying is when you pray this shortest phrase of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, you may not be thinking about all that I'm saying today, but that should be part of what is in your heart that, God, I'm asking you to hasten that day, bring it to pass, uh, when you will rule this earth and everything will be made right and everything will be made new. Now, in closing today, I guess the question is, how can we experience and how can we advance God's kingdom on earth now? I mean, yeah, one day it's going to be perfect down here, but is there anything that we can do so that we can more fully experience God's kingdom in our lives on a daily basis? Well, I've made a list of four things, and I want to just share them with you briefly. Number one, we can advance and experience God's kingdom in our own lives by making Jesus our king. And if you've never done that, I would encourage you today to pray and ask Jesus Christ to save you and to forgive you. Make him your king. Maybe you're already saved. Many of you are. 
But maybe there's some area in your life where Jesus is not king, he's not Lord. You're kind of setting up your own kingdom. You're doing your own thing. You need to crown Jesus king of every area of your life. We all do. Number two, by putting Satan behind us. One of the things that will make the millennial kingdom so wonderful is that the devil will be in a bottomless pit. And one of the things that's going to make heaven so wonderful ultimately is that the devil will be in hell. And so we'll be free from him and his influence. So we need to put Satan behind us and stay away from those things that could trip us up or that could cause us to sin. Number three, we can experience and advance God's kingdom in our own lives by doing those things that lead to peace. If I could only choose one word to describe the kingdom of God, it would be that word peace. Jesus is going to rule. There's going to be peace. Well, we can have peace in our lives if we would do those things that lead to peace. That's what Paul said in the book of Romans. He said, do those things that lead to peace. Follow peace. Anything that causes you to have peace, do it. Anything that causes you to have turmoil and unrest, don't do it. Avoid those things, but do those things that lead to peace. And then number four, by leading others to Christ, by sharing Christ and telling others how they can be saved. Well, friend, I want to thank you for joining us today. We're out of time. I hope this has been a helpful study. I would encourage you to visit our website this week at peacebybelieving.org, peacebybelieving.org. Contact us. Let us know where you're listening from. Let us know how we can pray for you. Thank you, and God bless.